0: Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays, coming off of a win yesterday, heard still too much discussion about their hitting with runners in scoring position. And they got together and they decided, well, you know how we can get them to not talk about hitters hitting with runners in scoring position? What if we just don't put anyone in in scoring position for an entire game? That's not entirely true. The Blue Jays momentarily had someone on second base yesterday, but they went a big old 0 for 1 with runners in scoring position. They only had five base runners the entire game. Uh, They scattered a couple of singles throughout the later innings of this game. They got two men on base in the first inning when Bo and and Vlad both hit kind of softer singles, and from there, that was it. They grinded into one double play. They, they just really never threatened Dean Kramer who went six shutout innings allowed five hits with five strikeouts. Didn't walk a batter, uh, got through six on just 93 pitches. He wasn't even supposed to be there today. Um, he was bumped a day early because Jack Flaherty was scratched. Now that's not an excuse for the blue Jays because that was the seventh time they've seen Dean Kramer over the last two seasons. Uh, but good for Dean Kramer, I suppose, He turns it over to Webb, to Cano. Cano, uh, Kevin Biggio nearly got him. Hard, uh, Kevin Biggio pinch hitting for Alejandro Kirk in the eighth. uh, Put a drive into one that Cedric Mullins had to jump on the track to corral. But that's it. That's all the Jays would threaten. And then the Orioles get the benefit of turning to not Batista, who will now be available for the series finale and rubber match today, but Chintaro Fujinami. And why they were able to go to Shintaro Fujinami is that Trevor Richards in the bottom of the eighth took what was a 2-0 deficit and turned it into a 7-0 deficit. That was the final. Uh, Kevin Gosman went six innings, allowed two earned, five hits, one walk, eight strikeouts. Uh, He did allow a home run to Anthony Santander, who would later also homer off Trevor Richards. I think you can forgive Gosman the Santander home run. He pretty much golfed it out of the dirt, uh, a slider that did its job getting down underneath the zone. Maybe it didn't get away from him quite as much, or Santander's a a switch hitter, rather. So maybe it didn't get in on him uh, back foot as much, but it was very low in the zone and not a a pitch you would normally see someone swing at, let alone golf for a home run. Uh, Otherwise, the primary concern with Gosman's start was that he wasn't particularly pitch efficient early. Uh, The Orioles loading the bases in the second with a single, a walk, an error from Whit Merrifield. Uh, Gosman struck out a pair of batters in a row to get out of that. Um, never really looked bad, but not quite as much swing and miss as we're used to seeing from Kevin Gosman. Um, the splitter was better than last time out, but still wasn't breaking as much as we normally see from him. So that's something to keep an eye on, especially as we head further down the the track here. Because Kevin Gosman has had not bad Septembers, but just slightly You know, he cools off a little bit in September the last couple years. So that's worth monitoring. Uh, Genesis Cabrera comes in, gives a clean seventh. Trevor Richards has an awful lot of trouble in the eighth, gives up the Santander home run, and then kind of just snowballs from there. He ends up surrendering five. Bowden Francis has to come in to finish up the inning. So the Jays lose 7 nothing. They're back to eight and a half behind in the division. And I'd probably say even with a win today, I can stop updating that for a little bit. Uh, Even with a win today, that'd be seven and a half with uh, about five weeks worth of games to go. That is going to be very tough to pull off Uh, elsewhere around baseball. By the way, Texas was off. Every other team around the blue Jays went to extra innings yesterday. Uh, Tampa Bay came back in the ninth and then won it in the 10th against Colorado. The Chicago white Sox did the blue Jays a favor in beating the Seattle Mariners in extra innings. For those of you who wanted Tim Anderson on the Blue Jays at the trade deadline, he got caught in a rundown and the ball hit his head and that allowed him to score. Uh, so Tim Anderson did help the Toronto Blue Jays in the wild card race at some point. The Boston Red Sox then beat the Houston Astros in 10 as well. So the standings look very similar to where we left them. Jays a game back of the third wild card, uh just a game and a half separating Houston, Seattle, Toronto for two spots there. Boston kicking four games behind and Tampa Bay as the top wild card pulling further ahead. Uh, they are now five games up on Houston. So six and a half up on the Blue Jays. The Jays playoff odds per fan graphs coming in at 64% as of this morning. Um, there is some um, for those of you who, you know, the math looks a little weird to you in both leagues right now. There are a lot of teams in the like 60% range for playoff odds. And I know that that can look weird because obviously not all of those teams are going to get in and it's weird to have them with better than a 50, 50 chance of getting in. But think about it. If there are three teams for two spots and we assume they're all dead, even they would each have a 66% chance of getting in. So that's just how the weird math works on that. Uh, The J is a little below that coming in at 64% right now. Today is the last day of this Baltimore Orioles series if they even get the game in. And then the Jays will play five consecutive series against teams that are either last place or the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, It is that stretch of schedule where the Blue Jays absolutely need to find their footing and start playing some good ball with consistency. That needs to start at the plate because the pitchers have continued to do their job. uh, Trevor Richards aside yesterday. Let's try to sort through what happened yesterday. Tee up tonight's rubber match. Joining us now. Uh, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays on the Sportsnet Radio Network for this series, for all of the series last week, alongside me, it's Ben Shulman. Ben, good morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Blake. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, I guess the the biggest thing we take when we look around the box scores at all of baseball yesterday, uh, the Blue Jays really missed Paul DeYoung's bat.
1: Man, I mean that was the wildest St. Louis Bar and Grill out of town scoreboard <laughs> update I've probably ever done. Chris LaRue and I were watching that game before the Blue Jays got underway, and we just looked up and saw Paul DeYoung 2 for 4, and I was like, no way. <laughs> and it's just that classic. You know? I, I, it's good for Paul DeYoung. Like, I you know, don't wish that, that he hit poorly for the rest of the season, but uh, he had as many hits yesterday as he did in his entire Blue Jays career, at least in the first place.
0: Yeah, he went 3 for 44, as a Toronto blue Jay with zero home runs and one RBI yesterday, he goes three for five with a home run and four RBI. And isn't that just the way baseball works sometimes. And Ben, I think had that happened on a day like Sunday, maybe even a day like Monday where the blue Jays bat or Tuesday, rather where the blue Jays bats are doing their job. uh, You could laugh at it yesterday on another day where the blue Jays get shut out. It felt a little differently. Um, This Jays team, Every offensive baseball is going to have their ups and downs. But over the last two months or so, this Blue Jays team has been blanked a lot more than anyone else in baseball over these last couple of months. Um, even if you, and I think we tend to think of the more boomer bust teams as the home run heavy teams, the teams that really rely on the long ball. What do you make of this team's kind of propensity for getting blanked entirely? Not just having one and two, but they have put zeros up on the board a handful of times.
1: I think it really comes down to a lot of star players just not having consistent production. I I think that for a lot of teams your your top three or four guys are, are going to be hitting most of the time and then when your you know other guys in the lineup start getting going then then you're really gonna have some of your big days and for the blue jays they haven't been able to bank on very many people uh coming up day in day out and putting in great offensive production. So, you know, when they have a day where uh, they're not going to get, you know, a, a big performance out of, you know, let's say a Beau Bichette who who ended up with a hit yesterday, but, you know, goes one for four. They're not going to have a big day from Whit Merrifield, who's been uh, at least struggling a little bit over the last week or so. They, they're in a lot of trouble, I, I think. They really rely upon, uh, you know, a lot of production out of those two and Brandon Belt because there's a couple other guys that, you know, hit, Near the top of the lineup are guys that you expected a lot of production out of that they aren't getting consistent production out of. So if one or two guys aren't aren't hitting well, that can really tear down the whole offense.
0: It can. And look, this is the eighth time the Blue Jays have been shut out this year. That's about middle of the pack for the league. So maybe not alarming in that sense, but it has happened eight times since June 19th. It's it's happened almost entirely over the last two months here after they were on at one point an MLB high streak of 92 consecutive games without being shut out. Uh, so it looks extra pointed there. Um, so yesterday it's Dean Kramer on the mound. And I know that he's like, he's a bit of a a weird guy to game plan for just in general. Another one of those, you know, kind of Chris Bassett types that throws six different pitches is comfortable throwing them in different counts and different locations and things like that but this was the seventh time Dean Kramer had pitched against the blue Jays over 2022 and 2023. Um, You know, so you don't have the, you know, maybe a day Jack Flaherty dialed it up against you last time. And his velocity was just like outlier good that day. You can understand it a tiny bit. Brett Kennedy, even who we both lamented on the call on Friday, at least in that case, no one had ever really seen him before. He was fairly fresh from independent ball, but with Dean Kramer, yeah, he's a, he's a tough-ish guy to game plan for, but he came in with a 450 ERA, and the Blue Jays had seen so much of him over the last two years. Does that element of it make it part- like additionally frustrating?
1: I think so, and I think with the names you mentioned coming before him really adds to the frustration. It feels like the Blue Jays many times have made guys who are pretty good look really good this season, and... and they just missed some pitches yesterday. Even some of the pitches that they had hits on, you know, they only had singles yesterday, and probably could have done more with. And it it, it is just a little bit baffling sometimes uh, to see, you know, someone like Dean Kramer with really really solid numbers against pretty much uh, the entire Blue Jays, except for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and uh, it, it is it is pretty mind-boggling because, you know, it was his first start back, but they absolutely tear apart a guy like Hunter Green, and, and they have a lot of trouble with Dean Kramer, and you'd probably think that was flip-flopped if, uh, you know, you lined up those two starts and looked at it before they happened. So it, it is weird. I mean, it was weird that the Blue Jays thought they were getting Kramer today and they ended up getting him yesterday but in theory they were still preparing for him because they knew they were going to face him at some point in the series and and the guy mountain today uh, Kyle Gibson, you know, has had some pretty good success against the Blue Jays this season too and overall has had kind of a, a mediocre season if you look at it on the whole, so it, it is it is really odd the uh the number of times that the blue Jays have made kind of mid rotation starters look like aces uh and it and it really came down i think yesterday to just uh, you know fouling off pitches that they really should have hit hard, hitting singles on pitches that they should have hit hard and and taking some pitches like you said kramer's got you know kind of an interesting repertoire and he, and he throws three types of fastballs pretty often, so I think sometimes it's a little bit difficult to pick it up. But, you know, he's averaging, what, 93, 94 on the four-seamer. The cutter way less than that. The sinker a little less. None of them have huge break. Like, I I think that there was – plenty of opportunity to produce offensively yesterday before the bullpen came into the game for the Orioles and the Blue Jays just didn't take advantage, frankly.
0: And they're looking at a guy in Kyle Gibson today who checks some of the same boxes you just laid out with Dean Kramer or or, or that we laid out with some of the starters uh, last week. And the Jack Flaherty thing is weird. You know, his quotes about it that sometimes you don't bounce back the way you want to and declining to be more specific than that, but I guess didn't feel good in a a side session between starts, especially weird with Baltimore kind of carrying a six-man Rotation right now in a shorter bullpen. Nonetheless, Kyle Gibson will go tonight. He has a 4.97 ERA on the year. Another guy who throws six pitches, including three different versions of a fastball. With Gibson, at at least you can understand why well, he's six six. He gets really far down the mound, and that sinker's pretty heavy, and he locates it well low. Like you can at least understand why you'd have to chip away with ground balls against him, or wait for something off speed or breaking. However, he's another guy, 497 ERA on the season. And over his two starts against the Blue Jays, he's allowed just two earned in 13 innings. Uh, If you are the Blue Jays and you're seeing another guy like this, you've seen Kyle Gibson a couple of times. What do you think the game plan is in a situation like this? Because, you know, over this Baltimore series, they've been pretty aggressive Early encounters so far that that worked to some extent against Rodriguez certainly against Michael Bowman out of the bullpen the other night um, but Gibson another guy who will mix and match stuff and, and locate a couple different fastballs a couple different places uh, would you like to see some kind of plan of attack tweaks from yesterday?
1: I don't think I would go too crazy like I do like them being aggressive against fastballs. I feel like they've been lacking that at times this season, but I, I think that's especially important in like 0-0 and 1-1 counts. I think there were a couple of times yesterday, and I would hope the Blue Jays maybe adjusted to this today, where, you know, they, they were ahead in counts. They were up 2-0. They were up 3-1 or even up 2-1, and they went swinging at, you know, a a cutter that was right on the outside edge or a sinker that broke way in on the hands at the bottom of the zone. And I think in that respect, maybe there's time to be a little more patient, hunt an extra base hit, be okay taking a strike if it's a good pitch, because they just ended up getting themselves out a lot yesterday. I felt like in counts where they had an ability to do some damage. If it's, you know, if it's an 0 fastball and you want to go swinging at it, I, I think that's pretty fair, and a lot of hitters do that in Major League Baseball. But I think especially when they get ahead, they, they really do have to try and hone in on something that they like, find a zone uh, that they feel they can drive the ball on a pitch that they like because it really felt like Dean Kramer was dictating a lot of what was going on yesterday rather than the Blue Jays controlling a lot of those at-bats.
0: So one of the other potential options for the Blue Jays to – Get the offense going, and again, it had it was it was one day with the shutout. They they got six the day before. They they'd hit Hunter Green pretty well. It, it hasn't been quite the Beau Bichetteless stretch of two weeks there, but it wasn't very good yesterday. And I think some people would look at a couple of offense-first pe- pieces the Blue Jays have on the bench and suggest well, why isn't a Davis Schneider in there when he's been used for offensive spark? Why isn't maybe a Kevin Biggio in there against a, a righty who doesn't have a lead velocity? Now, the hard part about this is someone has to come out of the lineup for those guys. But while the Blue Jays bats are a little up and down, um, could you see a scenario where John Schneider tries to find a little bit more time for Kevin Biggio or Davis Schneider just for that offensive kick, even if it does mean you know a bit of a step back defensively?
1: I think there's definitely a possibility. I mean, Franklin Blue Jays running this kind of like game on the last three games, which has been pretty brutal. So maybe there's a need to just give someone defensively a a day off anyway. And it it is tough because, you know, both of those guys that you mentioned are, you know, really primarily second baseman. Biggio obviously plays the corner outfields and first base and a little bit of third as well. But you, you don't want to take Witt out, I think. I mean, maybe there's a justification. Witt has had a, a rough six games, I think it is, and maybe you just give him an off day and, and let him reset for the next series coming up against Cleveland. Um, but but if you're not taking Witt out, are you really going to take Dalton Varsho out of the lineup right now? I mean, he's been one of the better hitters for the Blue Jays in that list stretch and even continuing now on this road trip against Cincinnati and Baltimore. So I, I'd find it hard to take Varsho out of the lineup. I mean, maybe you could take. Springer out of the lineup, but that feels like a a pretty big move. And as well as David Schneider has hit so far, and Biggio has hit recently, I don't know if you want to take Springer out. So there is some tough decisions. Maybe they just do a Whit Merrifield off day or a Kevin Kiermaier off day. You know, he's played a couple in a row now, coming off of his uh, IL stint. So there's a possibility, I think, there to to take one of them out today and just mix it up a little bit. But I mean, you know, your first base DH combo is locked in between Vladdy and and belt your third base is locked in your shortstop's locked in you'll probably have Danny Jansen in today instead of Alejandro Kirk which provides more offense uh and you know there's a little bit of room to wiggle in the outfield but not that much so I, I would definitely be for given those guys an opportunity I mean the best swing any Blue Jay had yesterday I think by far was Kevin Biggio. I, I don't think there's a doubt about that he nearly hit a home run yesterday and it was five singles and that was it but Uh, It is tough to think about who you're going to take out of the lineup to put one of these guys in.
0: Yeah. That's the, always the complicating factor. It's the same, you know, when we do all star snubs or or this guy's not getting enough playing time, someone's got to come out. And that is the, uh, the hard part here for the blue Jays Uh, on the other side of things, Ben, you and I called a game last week where Kevin Gosman's splitter was very bizarre. And by bizarre, I mean, results based. Hey, he, they were, the Phillies were hitting it a lot. Um, you know, metric based. It wasn't breaking as much. The velocity was actually up, but but the vertical break on it wasn't there. And it only generated two swing and miss that entire start. We were also coming off of a game couple starts back where the Orioles swung at way more splitters than we're used to teams uh, swinging at. Normally, we see the teams who do well against Gosman are the ones that are disciplined and able to lay off. The splitter a little bit more yesterday. Somewhere in between, Kevin Gosman obviously has a good start. Two earned over six. Um, he did get eight swing and miss on the splitter, but once again, the Orioles were pretty aggressive swinging at splitters. They fouled off twenty nine pitches against Gosman, which is a season high for him. And just, I mean, if you're going to run a guy's pitch count up, that's the way to do it. Um, given what we've seen from the Orioles in two starts against Gosman the last little bit, that Philly start. Um, what do you think? And, and I I draw the contrast back to say the Minnesota twins who had some success against Kevin Gosman by laying off the splitter entirely. If you were game planning for Kevin Gosman in a big game, you know, which way do you lean? Is is it entirely based on your personnel? Because we've seen teams have a little success laying off, have a little success jumping all over it. But obviously those two strategies are in contrast to each other. You can't do them both. Um, what, What do you make of those kind of, Polarized ways of approaching Kevin Gosman as an opponent,
1: yeah, it's tough because when it's on, you know it's about as good of a pitch as there is in baseball, but when it's off, just like you know a change or something if one of those floats in there, it's as good of a pitch to hit for extra bases as you're going to find in major league baseball as well and i I probably lean more in the layoff can the Orioles have had success; they're just an offensive powerhouse. Uh, anyway and I think that they just have a ridiculously difficult lineup to pitch to like even Ramon Urias yesterday who's not an everyday player is coming in and and really battling against Kevin Gossman splitter in a way that I think not a lot of guys can Uh, I, I would probably lean towards taking it until he can prove he can throw it you know in the zone for you because Yesterday, he got those swings and misses. I thought the break looked pretty solid on the splitter, at least. I didn't think the command of the splitter was all that good, though. He ended up throwing a lot of them in the dirt. Uh, He's not trying to throw many of them in the zone, but his zone percentage on it was about 20%. uh, And and it felt like a lot of the time he was just missing either kind of to the... Are a little higher than he wanted, or spiking it in the ground. And I think that it's so easy to get weak contact off that pitch with the amount that it breaks, and, and just how tricky it is to square up. That you know, unless you really find one you like right down the, of the I probably towards laying off of it because you know I, I do think that uh, guys swinging at the splitter helped Gosman out in a lot of cases. There were times he was behind in the count, threw a splitter, strike or yeah, strike to ball and guys still ended up swinging through it where if they had laid off and it's not a good pitch to hit when you're up in the count, I think they would have you know, had a lot more success than they did against Gosman. He's got a good fastball, but he doesn't want to live just on the fastball. And if anything, you know, aside from that early start where he just clearly didn't have it with the splitter that went slider heavy, he is not using the slider a lot, and he didn't really use it much yesterday either. So I, I think that if you can force him to throw more sliders, you're probably in a good position. I mean, it was below the zone, but Santander just demolished a homer off of a slider yesterday. So I I think if you uh, can lay off the splitter, it's probably the best thing for your offense.
0: Last one on Gosman. Um, There are... It's not a concern. I concern is overstating it. But in each of the last couple of years, his September performance was a little bit worse than it had been uh, in the months preceding. Now, monthly splits are up and down. You know, opponents, who do you run into? You have one bad game, etc. But it did happen two years in a row. We know that Kevin Gosman's splits when he has additional rest are really, really good versus when he's just starting on the regular four-day turn. Uh, how much of that is on your radar this next little bit here, especially as the Jays look? at hey what's the optimal rotation coming out of off days and things like that
1: I think it's definitely a little bit on my radar like you mentioned with the monthly split so I, I think one thing that probably hurts him in the month of September is near the end of the season and it's a little different now than it used to be but you play a lot of divisional opponents typically when you stack up near the end of the year and, and while his pitch mix is very effective it's not the most complex but it's not Chris Bassett you know he's throwing pretty much two pitches for 80 to 90 percent of the game so I I do think teams that have faced him more and seen the splitter more are going to be more effective against him Uh, he was pretty good for the Blue Jays in the playoffs in his start last year I I know it kind of fell apart but uh, I I think that I, I still have a lot of faith in him but it will be interesting to see Uh, you know, what teams like the Tampa Bay Rays and New York Yankees do against him coming up at the end of the season, because although they haven't seen him as much this year, and it's been a a long while since they've played either of those teams, they're guys who have seen the splitter a lot in years past. And I think that that definitely helps the team. So if you can get him some extra rest, I I think that's always helpful for pretty much any pitcher. And the numbers would show that it's extremely helpful for him. And, And I think a lot of the September stuff does, at the end of the day, come down to the opponents that he is facing I mean he has had you know a a rough start there against the Orioles recently he also was coming off injury he had a rough start uh, against Philly but that's you know that's a pretty high powered offense they haven't hit like it for a lot of the season but they definitely got the names to be a high powered offense so uh, I I think I'm not overly concerned but it's definitely a little bit on my radar that he's had regression previously and, and at least for a mini stretch here, he's regressed a little bit as well.
0: Yeah, the Yankees uh, hadn't heard that name in quite some time here, uh, but I guess when Aaron Judge hits three home runs in a game, they they end up back on our radar uh, a little bit here. Ben, similar question and, and I'd imagine your, your answer is fairly similar here. Trevor Richards, not the sharpest of outings when he first came off the I.L. Obviously really struggled uh, last night. Given that he was dealing with the neck inflammation, I, I know he only missed the minimum. He came back pretty quick. Uh, any level of concern there or this just your standard hey a reliever is going to have a bad game every once in a while blip
1: yeah just minor concern I think you know I'll have to wait to see a couple more appearances and if a, a couple more go poorly then I think it's something to really talk about but you know the pitch that Santander hits out of the ballpark I didn't think was a terrible pitch uh, he ends up, you know, the walk to Mountcastle was pretty rough, but that's a tough guy to pitch against. I think he gets some bad luck in that inning a little bit as well. You know, like he should have given up a couple in that inning. Should he have given up five? Probably not. I, I think that there were a lot of things that could have happened there that could have helped him out. It didn't help him out earlier in the inning either. Now the Blue Jays committed an error that helped score to run and and an error that had it not been committed, they maybe would have stolen out from the Orioles in that respect too. So uh, I'll have to wait and see a little bit longer. He's been so good for so much of this year that two rough starts in in three tries off the IL isn't going to completely diminish the confidence, but this is, you know, a really high caliber bullpen with a lot of guys pitching very well. And I do think you can slide down on the leverage ladder pretty quickly just because of how well everyone else is pitching and how important all these games are, of course, that, you know, if if things keep sliding, you definitely could find yourself in a spot uh, that's lower leverage than you were before. And I don't think Richards is really in any jeopardy, but when Chad Green comes back, someone's going to go down too, and there's a bit of a crunch coming up in the bullpen with how well everyone's pitching. So, I mean, we expect that to be about in Francis. I wouldn't, I would be surprised if it wasn't, but at the same time, you know, all of these guys are competing against really good guys alongside them in the bullpen to be in these leverage spots, and if you slip up a couple times over a a two-week stretch, you will drop in leverage, I think, pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, especially when, you know, John Schneider talks about the bullpen being in pairs, and and presumably those pairs are sixth inning, seventh inning, eighth inning, ninth inning. Uh, Obviously, matchup dependent and righty-lefty around that, but generally speaking, a, a lower leverage guy, and then escalating more and more high high leverage guys. Uh, Chad Green. The update on him, by the way, is uh, he's expected to get into another Triple A game on Friday, potentially pitch back to back there Friday Saturday, depending on how those go. And at this point, we're probably close enough that I might just wait until September first if I'm the Blue Jays, uh, because you get an extra a bullpen spot. At that point, but worth noting that, yeah, not only is Chad Green coming back, but Jay Jackson, who's going to join us here in about 10 minutes, is also in AAA, and he is on merit, a major league reliever. So uh, a crunch there. Ben, before I let you go, I prompted, I prompted let you know this question was coming. And for anyone who doesn't know, Ben Schulman is a, a very big It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fan. Uh, that is most of our time during commercials and prep is just Always Sunny in Philadelphia references when we do games. Uh, what episode best describes this blue jay season, Ben?
1: Yeah, this was uh this was a great question and they're I cherished in my childhood a lot and the Toronto Blue Jays and it's always in Philadelphia. We're definitely kinda of top of the mountain for that. So I because I did so much research, I'm mean, going give you a longer answer than you're asking <laughs> for because there were some honorable mentions. You know, they're they're chasing down teams. You could have gone Mac and Dennis manhunters right now. <laughs> Uh, the gang reignites the rivalry with Seattle being back in the mix. I I would take the blue Jays in some sort of Delphia competition. I think Brandon belt just absolutely smashes a cup of, of beer and flips it in a second. Uh, but uh, you know, it's definitely not the world series defense, uh, unfortunately okay. for the blue Jays. One I have to go with, and, and maybe it's a bit of a reaction to yesterday. I'm going to go with who pooped the bed uh, oh. because it's, it, It's just phenomenal and in that episode it's only two guys under scrutiny Charlie and Frank on on which one of them pooped the bed I think there's a third actually that might be in the mix but it's pretty much those two that are under the spotlight but for the Blue Jays it's just a mystery in a lot of ways that they find to lose games like you just uh, obviously they win more than they lose they've won 13 more times than they've won. They have found a, a significant number of ways to lose games this year that I haven't seen in a while. And so uh, you know, it feels like at least once a series, or maybe once every two series, we're we're trying to figure out uh, who pooped the bed in this game because you know they'll they'll take two out of three, but they should have swept because this guy did this in this spot, or or this guy did this in that spot. And I, you know, it, it's a little bit natural in a baseball season for stuff like that to happen, but it it does feel like it's happening to the Blue Jays this year a little bit more often. Uh, than most seasons
0: and that episode also includes increasingly complex theories on exactly what has happened and what is going wrong here and then at the end you find out it's the simplest possible explanation which is what I think we're heading for here too and uh, you can look at some of this uh, offensive stuff hey you got shut out eight times in the last two months hey you're one of the worst teams hitting with runners in scoring position or in high leverage spots Uh, maybe we after all two hours a day on this show stretching for increase recently complex explanations maybe it just ends up being uh, the simplest possible explanation at the end anyway uh, ben shulman thanks for taking the time out this morning have a good call tonight if we do get a game in
1: thanks so much i appreciate it and as uh, charlie day said in the gang beats Boggs," that's baseball baby
0: That is baseball, baby. That is Ben Shulman, uh, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays on the Sportsnet radio network for this series, for the last couple of series, um, obviously working in and out uh, around Ben Wagner, been a lot of fun to get to know Ben, do some games with him. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to talk to another guy. It's been fun to get to know uh, a little bit. I think Blue Jays fans are very invested in his personal story as well as his baseball story. Jay Jackson, a reliever for the Toronto Blue Jays and now the Buffalo Bisons, joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.
2: Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Alish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is the entrance mu- music of Tetsuya Naito. We'll get to that In a couple minutes here, a little tease for those who know. Uh, Joining us now, pitcher for the Buffalo Bisons. You've seen him a bunch with the Toronto Blue Jays this year. It's Jay Jackson. Uh, Jay, good morning, man. How are you?
3: Morning, Blake. How are you?
0: I'm good, man. Thanks for doing this. Um, You get dropped back into a Buffalo Bisons team this week. That's pretty hot. You guys won another big one last night, five of the last six. Uh, What is the, what's the vibe and energy like around this Bisons team right now?
3: It's good. Everybody's just enjoying the last part of the season, just um, just getting in the rest of the work they were, they've been working on for the, the whole season. You're seeing the results of it these last couple of games where, you know, second half really where these guys have been on a tear and at the top of the leaderboard for their division for this second half stretch. So guys are just putting in a lot of work that they had at the beginning of the year, starting to show results and starting to win games.
0: Yeah, only three games back in the the second half division standings there, so playoffs still uh, possible. And now they get uh, Jay Jackson back uh, at least for a little bit, which is a nice boost to the bullpen. Um, Jay, but if for anyone who didn't notice, and most of our listeners through the the television broadcast, through you know Caitlin McGrath's great piece at the Athletic, um, people are familiar with. Your story and, and that you've been trying to get back and forth to Salt Lake City to uh, see your son, JR, where you can. You were able to get a couple days in in Salt Lake, but before going Toronto to Buffalo, um, how was that? What What's the, the latest? I'm sure people would love to hear the positive updates on JR.
3: Oh, JR is definitely trending in the right direction. Um, a lot of people might have saw on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, um, <laughs> that Sam put an update up there that he actually had coughed up his breathing tube um once the first first or second day I was there, which was kind of a panic moment for all of us. But the doctor said that, you know, they're gonna let him take stay off the breathing tube and just put some um nose plugs, I guess, into his nose to help him breathe just through that instead of using the whole tube and just to see how that was gonna work. And he's taken to that pretty well. So he's breathing a lot better than he was before on the other machine. So he's on a new one and hopefully he gets off of that one at some point in the next couple of weeks and gets on to a smaller one that he's breathing more, more by himself again, but he's trending in the right direction, you know, especially for him being, pulled out as early as he was he's a fighter and that's just a testament to him and sam and everything else but he's definitely going in the right direction
0: and i I saw right you got to hold him this past weekend as well which which was a first for you
3: yeah i got to hold him twice i got to hold him the sec at the day after he coughed up his tube because they said because of him not being on that extra breathing tube that there's less chance for infection of anything so I was actually able to hold him, not only hold him, but do skin to skin. And he got to lay on me for a little bit. And then the night I was coming back to Buffalo or Syracuse, I got to hold him for like, or skin to skin for another like 30, 45 minutes that night too. So it was definitely surreal. Uh, I can't thank the doctors and Sam and just the team enough that I've been able to get back and be able to have these moments with my son.
0: Um, I, I know that, obviously there is a, a huge amount of strength from you, from from Sam through all of this. Um, what what has it been like kind of, you know, trying to focus on baseball while all of this is going on? You, you've done a little bit of the back and forth. Obviously you're, you know, you're talking to Sam constantly and your mind is um, back with her and JR at times, but you're also trying to focus on baseball. H- how have you been able to manage that as well as you have?
3: I would say that's just, you know, The strength that comes from Sam and my family, and just all the people that supported me throughout this process. You know, I've had a lot of friends, you know, help me out whenever I needed to pick me up, especially a lot of my guy friends um, that I came close with over the few years that I've been playing ball or just guys that, like, I've known just in general that have taken kind of a liking to me. They've reached out and kind of checked on me, every city I've gone to. When they've been in town, they've kind of, you know, tried to reach out and see me too. But I'd say it's mainly just the support of Sam and the strength of Sam and J.R., just knowing that they're in Utah handling business and staying on the right path that they are. And Sam's strong enough to keep it together with her and her family while I'm not there for the times I'm not. So it's honestly been them helping me be better at my job and being able to go out there and just compartmentalize just for those couple, you know, hour or two that I'm out there to get the job done so then I can come back and check on them. So it's hard, but it's it's a testament to them more than me, I would say.
0: Uh, I know you're, you know, you, you're fairly active on, on social media as well. Have you been able to, to feel, you know, the the Blue Jays fan base and the city of Toronto kind of being behind you a little bit with that as well?
3: Yeah, 100%. Me and Sam have been nothing but grateful and blessed to be in this organization and have the fans that the Blue Jays have and just the support and love that they've shown us throughout this process, too. And it's been unbelievable. And I can't thank the fans enough, um, the support, the gifts, the messages, hearing the stories from all the other people about how they've gone through similar things or even the messages I've gotten that, from people that say, you know, I was born premature and I'm fine now, and things of that nature. You know, it's just a roller coaster. You guys are doing a great job. Just the the amount of support and love that has been exuded from everybody has been, you know, I can't I can't explain it in words of how it makes me and Sam feel. And just knowing that that energy and support is helping us get through it, and helping Jr. get through it as well.
0: That's really great to hear Jay and um, I appreciate you sharing and, and I'm glad to hear the, the fan base has, you know, stood up like that and supported you guys. Um, I, I want to pivot now to more baseball and there's it's obviously an awkward transition from talking about Jr, but we'll, uh, we'll move to the baseball side of things here. You, you have been even before, um, Jr was born, you know, you'd been up and down majors to minors a little bit. I know you had done that at points in your past, um, when you look back, you decided to join the, join the blue Jays this off season in part because yeah, you wanted to be a part of a playoff team. Uh, even if that meant you might be in the, the minors a little bit and, and going up and down. What is that like for you? the the transition triple A to major leagues now that you've done it a couple of times. And now that, you know, when you do come up, you're seeing the results at the major league level.
3: I mean, For me, I take it all kind of the same. Like, it's minors and majors, but it's still just playing baseball at the end of the day. So I just try to go up there and just try to do my job and help the team out as much as possible. And for me, it's mainly, it just sucks when I go up there and then I get sent down because a lot of times over the past few years, it hasn't been because of my performance that I've gotten sent down and been shuffled between majors and minors a lot of times. So that's kind of hard to deal with. But again, it's just, you know, the numbers game to a certain point and how organizations view you compared to other guys and things of that nature, I'm never in control of that. So the way I look at it is I try to control the only thing I can control, and that's me going out there and playing and giving my best and helping my team as much as I can. And then after that, whatever the organization, front office, coaches or whatever else, whatever they decide, if they want to send me down and have me shuffled, then that's fine. You know, I feel like ultimately it's all in the plan that you know my life has to go where I'm needed and help the guys that I need to help. So if it's in the big leagues, I'm helping there. Hopefully, if it's in the minors, I'm helping there. But ultimately, you know, it's not really up to me. Like, I try to put my best foot forward every year I've had a chance to. And, you know, just try to take advantage of the opportunity. And So it's not so much of getting used to it. It's just kind of taking the, the factor of doubting myself out of it and just trusting that I'm good enough to be at whatever level there is.
0: And like you said, at times, you know, you getting sent down hasn't been your own doing. You had a very good season with Milwaukee back in 2019. Good season with San Fran. Uh, The Braves call you up last year. You throw a clean inning. And then, uh, you know, this is the way, you know, options and 40 mans and things like that work. But this has... Very likely been your most successful season. You you have a one sixty four ERA when you are up with the Blue Jays. Uh, that's sli- the numbers on that slider. Uh, Aaron Judge aside, and that whole thing early in the year. You know the numbers on that slider have been very very good. What do you attribute the success you've had this year to? Is there something that you know you've been grinding on, working on that that's kind of clicked for you? Is it just opportunity? Uh, because this is you know kind of the the best run you've had at the majors.
3: Yeah, I mean, I consider it just, you know, more opportunity than anything else because, like, I don't really look in the past as much as, you know, my friends and family do, but they point out to me, you know, you look at this year, you look at the numbers I've put up for probably, like, the past six, seven years, no matter where I've been for the most part, they're all similar. You know, when I was in Japan, like, I was a high-leverage guy, and you look at the numbers I put up over there. I come back and I play for Milwaukee. In San Fran, and I'm in good leverage situations there, hoping those teams get to get to the playoffs, you know what I mean? So I was thrown in good situations there where I was hoping the team win and then go back to Japan, Go COVID happens, things of that nature. Then I'm back with San Fran. It's just I. you look at the AAA numbers for the past few years, too. It's just getting an opportunity to be at the big league level and show what I can do. And like I said, taking the rest of it out of it because I, I can't control the rest of it. I can just go out there and do my best. And whatever happens, happens. So it's not one thing. It's just as I've gotten older and gone through this more times, it's probably just gotten better from the, the amount of times I've thrown it and been in these situations.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, you you were a part of those teams and San Fran, Atlanta and Milwaukee all went to the playoffs. I know you were on the, the playoff roster for the Brewers, um, but you know, you didn't get into a game. When you were deciding this offseason where to sign and the Blue Jays were an option, I I know Arden Zwelling wrote about this and spoke to you about it back in spring training, but the opportunity to be... In a competitive playoff environment, was more important to you than maybe, hey, a team where they could throw sixty innings at you and you'd be on the major league roster the whole time. Um, was that a, a big factor for you? Just the the ability, no matter the role, to be a part of a, a team that's fighting for the playoffs.
3: Yeah, well, that's definitely a part of it. You know, when I was going through the process at the beginning of the all season and during the all season, you know, the Blue Jays had told me that I was going to be in the running to make the team out of camp if I had a good camp and there's going to be some spots possibly open and things of that nature. And, you know, you just – you trust what the teams tell you at that point. I had a few teams tell me, hey, like, you're going to be one of the veteran guys. You might make the team out of camp and, you know, you're going to help our guys, but you're not going to be an important part sometimes. <clears throat> but the Blue Jays were like, you know, I looked at the roster. I looked at who they were bringing in. I saw that it brought Don in. And I saw the additions they were making with KK and a couple other guys like Varsh and things of that nature. I was like, this is a very competitive team. And the only thing I feel like I'm missing from my resume in baseball is going to a World Series here and getting a ring here. So other than that, like, I was just looking at the teams that were talking to me and who had the best chance and who was telling me that I was going to be able to help the team actually be a part of a playoff run. Because you can be part of a team and then never – play or pitch or whatever at the big league level and they win a championship and yeah, you win a championship, but you didn't actually contribute to the team. And that, that feels, I mean, it's good to win, but for me, I feel like I haven't done enough if I'm not helping the team like get to that level. So the Blue Jays having the opportunity, they had the team they had being able to play with Vladdy, Cavan, Bo, uh, George, Gauze again, Belt again, just having those guys there and seeing the competitiveness that we were going to have was huge. And that was ultimately what, you know, drove my decision to come to the blue Jays. That, and the fact that they told me I was going to be able to help. So for sure.
0: So you have also been a part of some very competitive teams in Japan. You played for Hiroshima, um, in the, uh, Japan champion league or Japan central league rather. And I played you in with the walkout music of Tatsuya Naito, who for anyone who doesn't know is a a professional, one of the top professional wrestlers in Japan and new Japan pro wrestling. Uh, He just won the G one climax tournament. So he's headed for, you know, another big main event. Uh, Jay, I got to ask, man. So in 2018, you come out with Naito, for a match. And then after the match, you, you posed with Los and de jupon, uh, his, his stable there. How, how the heck did you get mixed up uh, with Naito and involved with new Japan pro wrestling?
3: It was actually funny. Like in 2018, when that happened, me and Naito had been friends for like a year or two before that, <laughs> like the first year I got there. Uh, so one of my friends actually was good friends with Naito. And then me and him actually, Start Like, Naito would always come and visit him when he was in Hiroshima and things of that nature. And So I met Naito, and me and him became good friends. And then 2018, he just happened to be like, hey, like, we're wrestling here. It's, we had just won the Central League twice, and he's like, you know, would you want to come out with us? And I was like, that would be awesome. Like, let me check to make sure the day they were playing, like, we weren't playing or something like that. And I was like, yeah, for sure, let me do it. And I got to actually come do all of it, and that was just amazing. Like I said, Naito's, Naito's an amazing guy. I've met him couple years before that he was actually um there the next day after my son was born in japan and he actually got to hold my son in japan so he's actually been a big part of like my whole japanese time frame over there that that's
0: awesome i'm a i'm a big japanese wrestling fan so that's very cool to uh to hear are, are were you a wrestling guy before that or this was like purely just hey you became friends with naito
3: I was a wrestling guy growing up. I watched all the WWE, WWF, um, NWO, you know, I watched all those growing up. So I was already a pretty, I was pretty into it. I wasn't as huge of a fan as I was when I was younger. But then I met Naito, I went to more matches, I started watching more. And just knowing the person he was, um, just kind of fell in love with just his group and watching them wrestle a lot and going there and doing that. And I also – I didn't get to meet Chris Jericho, but him – Naito and Chris Jericho were going at each other for a little bit over there, and I got to kind of see how the effects of that was and everything like that, so that was fun. But as far as being a fan, yeah, I'm always going to be – a low key fan of wrestling. <laughs>
0: uh, and I know you were in Buffalo at the time, but, uh, Okada and a couple of those guys were actually at a Jays game in, in June when, uh, when new Japan pro wrestling was over here. So, uh, wish I had known this all at, at the time. I would have tried to get the intro and, you know, maybe I could be doing the LIJ pose too with the, the fists up and everything.
3: Yeah, for sure. Those dudes are awesome. They, they accepted me and I like, I loved every moment I had with them. Those guys were unbelievable. They did a lot for me over there. Just, him to just have fun and see another side of Japan besides just playing baseball and just doing nothing.
0: <laughs> that's that's a blast, man. That's a, a lot of fun. That's very cool to hear. Uh, also awesome to hear about all the progress uh, JR is making Jay Jackson of the blue Jays of the Buffalo Bisons. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Uh, we're all in, in your corner and JR's corner. So uh, keep up all the positivity and all the great work.
3: No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Blake. Of course, anytime you guys need me, you know, I'm always
0: around, man. Jay Jackson, uh, pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays and the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, the Bisons right now making a push in the second half standings in the international league. They've won five of their last six. Uh, they have closed, you know, there there are a couple teams to jump still, but they're only three games back of a playoff spot. Of course, they're going to lose a pair of guys uh, September 1st when the Blue Jays roster's expand but still uh fun to keep an eye on that team norfolk being the team that uh clinched their playoff spot in the first half of the season they've cooled off a little bit here Uh, but yeah worth worth keeping an eye on on the bison's uh schedule page on on their box scores obviously we we take a look in at some of the prospects from time to time. We're actually going to talk to Kylie McDaniel after the break. So we'll get, uh, he's got his updated top 50 and his updated organizational rankings up over at ESPN. We'll pick his brain about Oralvis Martinez. Uh, Ricky Tiedemann, a bit of a rough one yesterday, just pitch count got away from him. Only lasted one and two thirds. That's for New Hampshire in double a, this Bison's team, by the way, in addition to only being three games out of uh, a playoff spot, they have, this is a little bit San Diego Padres of them, but they have by far the best run differential in uh, the international league in the second half year. So maybe even better things ahead for the Buffalo Bisons. Certainly if they get Jay Jackson into some games here, Chad Green working for them. One of those guys will be back up September 1st, and I'm sure there will be some some up and down as well. And then as for on the hitting side, who, who comes up next? You know, the lean might be, Nathan Lucas since he was last man out and he's obviously got the pinch running and defensive replacement utility but we'll talk to Arden welding around 11:30 and see what he thinks about that as well. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN joins Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.
2: Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays and NFL. The JD Bunker's podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Jays are very, very focused on the right now. Uh, they are a game out of the wild card. They're fighting a couple of teams for that. But in baseball, you always have to have an eye on the future, an eye on the Far in the distance future with your things like your organizational prospect rankings, the draft, an eye on the near-term future. How's your AAA team looking? Who's getting called up September 1st? And an eye on free agency. How's the team going to look next year? By the way, Fangraph's had a, an early peak at 2024 standings projections just based on who is still under team control for next year. is top of the AL East. That probably doesn't keep you warm at night coming off of a 7 nothing loss to uh, the Orioles. There is... Fairly major news that could affect this winter's free agent market in that Shohei Otani has torn his UCL again. Obviously, he is still maybe the best hitter in baseball, probably the best hitter in baseball. But ahead of a potential $500 million offseason, that's pretty big news. Uh, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN at Power Alleys on Substack, author of Future Value. He joins us now to help sort through that and some of his updated org rankings and prospect rankings. Kylie, good morning. I, I'm sure the answer to this is better than the Angels, but how you doing?
4: <laughs> that, that is true, better than the Angels. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, doing well. Sitting here, uh, finishing up my coffee. Uh... How's your morning going?
0: It's it's pretty good, man. I was just talking to a Blue Jays player about Japanese wrestling, so it doesn't get, even off a 7 nothing loss, doesn't get too much uh, too much better than that. Uh, I do want to talk some Jays and farm system stuff with you, but the headline item around Major League Baseball today, not only is Mike Trout going back on the IL after one game off, but Shohei Otani is once again torn his UCL. He will not pitch for the rest of this season. Uh, you had your kind of lay of the free agent landscape a couple weeks ago up at ESPN, Obviously Shohei Ohtani is still at the very top of that, but a two-way player headed into an historic free agency now with potentially needing Tommy John surgery. How, how is this going to ripple in the free agent market? How does it affect Shohei Ohtani's potential free agency?
4: Uh, I think that top line number will obviously be affected. I had sort of, uh, when I I wrote something, I want to say in the middle of the spring, and the sort of weighted average of all the projections—I think I had 26 projections—was like 530 million. Oof. So, you know, call, call it call it 550 if we're assuming you know highest bid wins. And in recent years, pretty much all the projections come in a little below where it happens. So it's kind of the expectation. By the time I wrote about it, uh, we were referring to my free agent rankings. Let's um, more say like two weeks ago. I was like, the, the thought process is now that it's around 600 million. It's gone up, say 10% since then. Uh, I checked in with a few people this morning just kind of saying, like, what do you think? And they're like, well, I mean, we don't know if this is doable, but it sounds like he could probably, like, just DH and then not pitch next year, but then pitch the rest of the, you know, potential 10, 12-year contract. Uh, and they were like, he might still get $500 million. Like, I don't think this changes that much in terms of like teams that will be interested, how much, you know, money does he get? Maybe a year gets trimmed off. Maybe there's some extra options tacked on the end in case he, you know, has another TJ or can't pitch anymore or whatever. But like, in terms of like, is he still going to get a mega deal? That's probably still going to happen. There's a chance that he wants to, you know, do a one year deal for a giant number or get an opt out and shorter term deal. Like his, his, um, His thinking and the stuff he's looking for may change because maybe he thinks a year from now um, he can prove that he can pitch and he'll get that giant deal. Um, there, there's some different ways to approach it from his end, but like it getting tons of money, I don't think it's going to change. It's just like how many tons basically.
0: Yes. And yeah, I guess the term, if he wants to kind of do the bet on himself, reenter. Um, so what you're describing with, Hey, he could, you know, have the elbow stuff be working on that, not pitch for a year, still be immensely valuable as a hitter. And then rejoin you as a pitcher again, we've seen him do that once already. And he was not quite this established yet, but he was still very, very good. Um, I I know you're not a doctor, so I don't mean to put you on a spot in that regard, but do you think some teams would have a concern that doing that and trying to do both of those things at once is maybe part of the the re-injury risk that Shohei's been dealing with here, where, you know, if you're focused on also hitting and that is a huge part of your day, not just the round-the-clock rehab, that that maybe has uh, an impact on the, the status of your arm moving forward? Is that something you've heard from any execs or people around baseball?
4: Yeah, the the way that the medical people had always explained it to us is the you know, one of the biggest sort of um, you know, fallacies in, you know, sort of um a- amateur uh parent uh, you know, travel ball, that kind of thing is that like, oh we'll just get you the T J now, get it out of the way, you'll come back throwing harder and it's like no, that's like a terrible idea for a number of reasons while you sometimes hear about a guy getting a tj and coming back throwing harder a that doesn't happen every time you just hear about the time that it happens you don't hear about the guy that never pitches again (laughs) and b from a medical point of view the way it's been explained to me is like the more wear and tear the more times you have a surgery the more likely it is that thing's going to break again and so you don't want to get started down that road obviously otani has now you know Seems like there'll they'll be two times he'll be cut on, which then the implication is that the next time is now more likely for him than for a pitcher that's never had it before. That otherwise is the same kind of pitcher, you know, throwing the same amount of innings and throwing the same hard uh, fastball, and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think like the, the real adjustment that like teams will be making in their projection of him and what kind of contract they mm-hmm. want to give them is think there's going to be a lot more. Um, sort of conditional stuff and team options and if he throws at least you know 20 starts this year then the second part of this contract comes because you're paying him based on him doing both and now the possibility exists after two tjs maybe he won't be able to um you know steven strasburg had two i mean Degrom's now going to have two it's not unprecedented that you can do it um but also these guys are getting it later in their careers at least one of them didn't really come back very well. uh, (laughs) uh, We're hoping to ground will. Um, It's certainly you look at it differently. There's not a lot of, you know, third and fourth TJ guys hanging around. So like there is like a sort of terminal, Situation you can get to with this So it just sort of introduces all those ideas Whereas having one TJ and coming off of two great seasons It's like no one's really thinking about that Any more than you would with any other pitcher Or any other young player uh, And now it's like more of a thought process And so certainly some teams with a lower risk tolerance Are just going to be like ah, I don't think we're going to be at the sort of competitive retail rate Teams are talking about paying this guy Because we're not interested in this sort of risk profile We'd rather get two or three you know cheaper guys And that's a totally defensible thing Because there, there's no for any of this (laughs) like like two tjs and being one of the best hitters in baseball and wanting 600 million dollars or 500 or 10 years you know whatever it is it's like no one's ever done all of those things before so for some team to be like we don't quite have the appetite for this i think it's actually defensible whereas in a lot of cases it's just the owner being cheap or the or the gm not having a stomach for risk generally speaking like this is unprecedented so it's, it's okay to sort of Step away from this one for a little bit if you want to.
0: Yeah, the guy who might have to go undergo a, a second Tommy John surgery and not pitch for an entire season also leads the league in runs, triples, home runs, walks, slugging percentage, and OPS. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of a tough thing uh, to contextualize. Um, so, Kylie, when you wrote up the the free agent market, it was... You know, not entirely stars and scrubs, but it was Shohei and then a giant golf and then the rest of the free agent class. Um, We didn't see very many guys move at the trade deadline who have term on their deal. Certainly not, uh, you know, a lot of interesting names with term on their deal. You had Matt Chapman as the number two free agent potentially heading into this winter. Uh, Would he still stand there and even as he's cooled off a little bit at the plate here you know, is he still looking at probably a nine figure contract this off season?
4: Yeah, I think so. And it's important to contextualize that if you were to say that second tier behind Otani is guys that you expect to get say 85 to one hundred and fifty, Uh, maybe even if you want to be more specific, like a 90 to one hundred and thirty-five, it would kind of be a tighter band. Uh, there's like maybe 12 guys that fit into that. <laughs> and Chapman, I think is like maybe the top guy of that group, maybe he, you know, the market doesn't materialize and he takes a three-year deal with an opt-out or, you know, obviously like there's all these different like caveats and stuff. But I think the reason I felt good putting him second is that he and Cody Bellinger are the only two hitters that are in the top 16. (laughs) So you can be sure they're both going to get paid. And there is some thinking that if you take the, you know, just the recent precedence of like Brandon Nemo is like not that dissimilar to Cody Bellinger. I think Chapman is a superior um, free agent sort of proposition. Um, to Bellinger uh, you can sort of just sort of ballpark the all right this seems over a hundred you know this one seems close to a hundred this one seems almost certain to get over 75 and certainly a hundred and then you look at all these various starting pitchers and you're just like I don't know this guy might get 80 maybe he gets a one-year deal maybe he gets 150 I don't know like someone's going to get over or underpaid but those two guys being the two position players you're like well those guys are definitely getting four five six-year deals and you kind of have to pay him at least 15 or 20 a year so you can feel pretty good that they're going to land somewhere in that area. And and I still think Chapman is probably the top of that group, but you know, we'll see apologies for the, uh, the puppy that's currently going nuts in the room next to me.
0: Fine. As long as you send me some puppy pictures after we're, we're all good. We're all good. Um, so I actually just posted some of that Substack that you just mentioned. So perfect. perfect. <laughs> you can see what I'm looking at. That's power alleys on Substack, by the way. Um, so Kylie uh, let's play out a scenario where Matt Chapman leaves the Toronto blue Jays. Uh, I don't think anyone wants that, but you know, economics are what they are. The, the, Yankees are who they are Um, let's play out that scenario and and use that to pivot to your recent farm system and prospect write-ups at ESPN so you did an updated top 50 prospects you did updated organizational farm system rankings and within that the Toronto Blue Jays did not grade particularly well they came 25th but in someone who was in the others of note, honorable mention, so conceivably that kind of 51 to 80 range on your prospect list was Aurelvis Martinez, who has come up as a shortstop but has seen some time at third base, now second base. The Blue Jays also have Addison Barger at AAA. They have graduated Davis Schneider to the majors. In a scenario where Matt Chapman were to walk, and this could apply to Whit Merrifield at second base as well, um, what is your confidence level that... One of the Blue Jays' more ready infield prospects could be ready to contribute to a win-now team next season.
4: I would imagine that's like the plan. Um, who, who knows exactly what the sort of breaking point is on, you know, Payne Chapman or you know, Merrifield, or exactly what the plan is. But like this is like pretty common, especially from teams whose executives fall in the in the Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, formerly Indians, now Guardians. Tree of executives, which is when you've got a top 100 prospect that looks like an everyday guy that's in AAA, that's ready to go, that you've been waiting years for, and he's coming up the same year that your free agent is leaving. Uh, it's like, oh well, like you know, you'll offer that free agent maybe two thirds of what the highest bid will be, but like he's not going to sign. Everyone understands that's what's happening. That's not obviously like the Cleveland payroll and the Toronto payroll are two different things, but just the thought process leads you to we have Martinez and Barger thing right there. And presumably one of them will be the answer. And the odds that you're going to thread the needle and give you know Matt Chapman 100 million dollars at age 31 next season, and he's going to be a great value with a positive you know return, it's like all right, all that stuff happening like it doesn't seem like a good idea. And Martinez I, I think has like made some strides this year. Like he has not uh, I would say dominated in AAA, but he's the age of all these college guys that just got drafted, and he's in AAA like hitting a bunch of home runs and playing a pretty decent third base, and he's. Prefer- formed at least league average while being at least two or three years young for every level he's been at after being touted as, you know, an amateur 15, 16 year old, as one of the best in his class. And he's basically like answered the bell at every level. It's like, you kind of got to find out what this guy is. And if what they think he is, is he needs half a season in triple a. So you're going to sign, you know, one year, $5 million deal, you know, extra guy to start for those first couple months. Wait for him to get ready, and then that guy, you know, pushes back into a utility role, or ideally he, you know, does great in spring training and then takes that job, or Barger does, or whoever it is. It just seems like this is lining up to be one of those, you know, we got everything we needed from Chapman. Uh, we're going to get a comp pick when he leaves. These guys are going to come up. We're then going to be 15 million dollars cheaper at that position. And probably not as good, but hopefully not that much worse. And in a couple years, maybe just as good as it would be if Chapman stayed. Like, that just seems like where this whole thing is headed. And it seems unlikely that they're going to... You know, do some version of either leave Martinez in AAA all year, or trade him, or they think he's a bench guy, and then just re-sign Chapman as much as I think like the fans would like that for continuity. That's just not how you know Shapiro and those kinds of guys really think about this sort of thing.
0: Especially when you know they're they're a borderline top five payroll right now. They're into the CBT, and yes, Ryu comes off the books next year, but they're still you know pretty a pretty expensive core with a number of holes to fill here. I'm sure they would love to plug one or two of those holes with guys making you know 750k versus uh, a couple of million so Kylie also within that you, you know you rank the Jays as the 25th organization in terms of farm system quality Ricky Tiedemann still checking in at number 21 in your overall rankings and you were you know complimentary of some of the risks the Blue Jays have taken on the prep side high in drafts over the last couple of years but my read on it and having talked to you over you know the last two years or so and, and reading your stuff is that you know a lot of the Better items in the Blue Jay system, with the exception of Martinez and Tiedemann, are guys who you know project as like solid bench pieces or good relievers, maybe. And with the exception of those two guys, and maybe Brandon Barriera, who has missed almost all of this season injured, there isn't quite as much ceiling in the system. Is that a fair read of why they're in the the bottom third of the league for you?
4: So the for for people that haven't uh, interacted with my stuff before the the way that I rank the farm systems is based on um, sort of empirical results of how, you know, a prospect of this tier historically over the last 20 years turns into this much at the big league level. You then can take that much performance, convert that into dollars. You then put a dollar on each prospect, add them all up. After doing all of this, the thing that surprised me when you look at like how much this system sort of values players and how I would value players, like, you know, looking at trades and things like that is the top, say 50 or 60 players are worth even more than I thought they were. Uh, Like, for instance, like Tiedemann is worth 11 Arjun Namalas or Tucker Tomans, which I wouldn't have guessed it was 11 of them. (laughs) I would have guessed like, you know, five or six, maybe like that would be a trade. You make five of those guys for one really guy. It's like, no, it's 11 of them. So all that to say basically how many guys you have in the top 100 dictates how what sort of tier, what area of the farm rankings you can be on. And so with Tiedemann being in that top group and then Martinez in the next group and then uh Era, the only other guy kind of like right there, you just you know, you have three guys in the mix, one to each of sort of the thirds of a top 100 the teams in the middle of the top have like five or six guys or maybe three or four guys just like knocking on the door, you know, that kind of thing. And it's usually because they've been trading for them or whatever. It's not that the blue Jays are doing it wrong. It's the blue Jays are sort of subtracting graduating guys, trying to improve their big league team, other teams you're trying to add up. Um, so all that to say, it is not necessarily a failure. And I would say what they've been trying to do the last couple drafts in taking Tucker Toman, Namala, Barriera, these are all high upside high school guys where they are taking a risk that the player is worth X in sort of value right now, we think he has a chance to really rise in value if we develop him well and we scouted him well. And same thing with Emmanuel Bonilla out of the July two classes last year. Um, There's, you know, those are sort of the guys they are hanging their hats on are the guys with the upside where you have some confidence internally that you're going to be able to do something with this. A lot of other teams, uh, tend to take sort of boring college guys and hit first high school guys with no tools where there's not a lot of variability and you know, you're going to have something like something is tradable and we're going to get 50 or 60 tradable somethings. And Toronto has like 20 or so, like everyone in baseball wants to trade for this guy kind of players. And like half of them are like high upstate high school guys, you know, you know further down landed Marudis, or Carter, uh, some of the guys they've taken later in the last couple drafts. They're taking some swings, trying to create the next Tiedem and Martinez, those kinds of guys that can be impact everyday guys that save them fifteen or twenty million dollars on their payroll when they get there. What that means is, if you miss a couple of them in a row, you're going to be a bottom five farm system, and you're going to be like, eh, we don't have a lot of ammunition for a trade. We don't have the next Carlos Martinez or Ricky Tiedemann coming, and we'll find out in the next year or two if that group of guys that I was sort of name-checking, the barrier uh, Namaal all those guys, if they make that jump, they all could make that jump in reality. You're kind of counting on half of those guys making that jump. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily like not high upside guys. It's they currently project to in reality be nothing or something. And so you split the difference and say, Oh, it's like probably like a bench guy is like the weighted average, but those guys are either one or the other it will be what happens at a you know, great stuff. Doesn't stay healthy. Doesn't really throw strikes that well. But like starting to turn the corner and if that clicks, then like you got a big league starter and it's like James Paxton or something and then you're really excited about it. So I I guess the the, the only like little quibble I would have with what you said is like while while those guys are graded the same as boring bench guys, they're probably going to be one or the other as opposed to actually ending up the boring bench guy.
0: Right. So the uh, the scope of potential outcomes here is huge. Um, I I do wonder, you know, the, the Dodgers ranked pretty well in your farm system rankings, that's been true for a fairly long time here. They are in like year 11 of permanent win. Now all in for a championship mode. Uh, if the blue Jays and look, the blue Jays are, as you said, more of the Cleveland mold than the Los Angeles Dodgers mold when it comes to a certain way of thinking. But what, you know, the Dodgers or or if there are other examples of teams who've been able to stay competitive this long while also making sure the farm system is well stocked. A lot of that probably comes down to player development. But is there anything strategically that the Dodgers have been able to do to kind of twin track this where they're always win now, but always a pretty good system as well?
4: Yeah, it's one of those things they talk about a lot. I think I'll probably end up writing an article this offseason about it, that the the thing that the casual fan isn't aware of, that I think the people in the industry and you know, sort of the people I'm talking to on a regular basis um, notice, is having a point of view, which which sounds like sort of a nothing, like n- nice to have. This is the thing we talk about, but doesn't really matter. Um, what I mean is, like Cleveland is the best in baseball at drafting boring college pitchers around five through eight. The Yankees are also very good at this specific thing, and every year, if you take three or four of them, there will be one real prospect that it, that goes from being worth a negligible amount of money to having a trade value of 15 million dollars. Uh the Yankees did that last year Cleveland has Bibby was that guy like 2 or 3 years ago and now is in their big league rotation. Like they're really good at that. And so the, the 2 years ago the Cleveland draft was I think it was three rounds of like position players and then literally 15 straight foreign college guys. They were like, we're really good at this. Why would we take five when we could take fifteen? And whatever it is we're not getting, like a you know boring second baseman, we'll just take a terrible one, or we'll trade one of these really good pitchers for an even better second baseman because like we're better at developing this kind of guy. The Yankees continue to take that sort of player because they're you know they're pretty good. They'll get Volpe and Judge and you know those kinds of guys uh, here and there. Not every year, but they'll get them and maybe Spencer Jones will be that guy, Um, but they know at that range of the draft when they go like small school, mid-major, late-rising, like reliever that could turn into a starter, like they're just really good at that. Toronto, I think, is developing that sort of um, proclivity looking at Toman and Namala and Barriera where it's guys that have multiple years of history of being toolsy and good on the high school side with the gamble being that you can keep the pitcher healthy. You can develop things a little bit because barrier stuff is already there. You're really just trying to harness it. Uh, Namala, there's some questions. How much is he going to hit Toman also like, is he going to hit and have power at the same time? Bonilla, you know, huge tools. Is that going to turn into in the same way Robes Martinez does? Is that going to be hit and power and production all at once? Or is it just going to be tools and BP and stuff? So I think they're leaning into that. They don't currently have the output if you were to use Robles Martinez and Ricky Tiedemann as like those are the two outputs, they obviously haven't made the big leagues yet, but they're very close. And that's been a success. They have created value, tens of millions of dollars in both of them doing that. I think they are trying to find that point of view. The reason I bring all this up is because the Dodgers are. I was talking to somebody about a prospect that the Dodgers have that all you need to do is basically lift the ball more and he'll be a top 100 prospect. And if this is a third team. And they were like, oh, yeah, well, if you're ever going to bet on a young player with a bunch of tools that's really good that needs to lift the ball more learning how to do it you'd put him in the dodger system he was like so he'll probably figure it out in, like the next year it's because like they're really good at that like will smith was a guy that hit a bunch of ground balls at louisville and didn't have a lot of power and all of a sudden he's in 30 home runs in the big leagues like four years later which is like unbelievable that you can be in the acc and not know how-, how to do that thing so if toronto can figure out what that thing is and i think again if it ends up being we turn high upside maybe can hit but they have a bunch of tools high school infielders into something then namala and toman will turn into something that will be their point of view and they'll start drafting the way Seattle did, where they had three picks in the first 35 and they took three high school position players because that's what Seattle's good at. So I think if Toronto has a, has an inkling that they've got a point of view here, they got a thing they're good at and they're going to lean into it, you're going to find out probably next season if that's the case. And if they get some results that they think they have something here, then they're going to start trading for those guys. They're going to start signing those guys internationally. They're going to start drafting those guys. It'll be obvious. And that's how you get more bang for your buck uh, in the amateur markets. And so you don't have to be trading players away from your big league team to have a top half farm system. You can just sort of be creating it and make it a sustainable thing. And that's like the little piece they're missing. But I think they're starting to move in that direction. So I'm kind of curious to see if in the next year or two, if they figure that out and it seems like things are clicking and they're like turning that corner and they're on that road to being the Dodgers
0: to bookend this with angels talk the angels point of view at least in parts of the draft seems to be valuing guys who can be very quick to the majors and not hesitating in uh, elevating them pretty quickly we've obviously seen this more recently with Nolan Sean uh, being the fastest draft to majors position player in like 35 years um, but this is also something that around baseball we we do seem to be seeing teams be a little bit more aggressive elevating position players Noel Marte and Mason Wynn are up in the majors at 21 Ethan Salas at 17 is already in double a dylan cruz is already in double a when you look at how aggressive some teams have been on the position player side this last little while what does that tell you about you know where we're at strategically and does this have something to do with you know i I know salas is 17 so he's a a poor example of this but something with how ready guys are when they're entering the the draft or or entering the higher levels of the minor leagues
4: yeah, I mean I talked about this a little bit in the uh, the book Future Value Available yep. wherever you buy books. Um, but the the idea being that the if you were if you were like in a front office in say like the nineteen eighties and you're drafting a high school player in the second round, the odds of that player never gets out of A ball are like pretty high. Like if you do that two or three times, one of those guys will not get out of A ball. And now if you take a high school player in the top fifty picks, It's almost impossible if he doesn't get out of a ball. Like it doesn't happen anymore. I think I looked it up. In the last time that a first round pick, like first 35 picks, didn't get out of uh, a ball, I think it was 15 years ago. (laughs) Like it just it doesn't exist anymore. And so a thing that was like the risk, the reason you wouldn't do a thing, like when I was a kid, uh, now is like oh that doesn't happen anymore. And the reason for that is because it used to be when you drafted a high school player, it was based on watching him play high school games, and that was it. And now you have an entire year round, in most cases, multiple years of summer and fall. Uh, and spring of playing high school games often with wood bat against other guys throwing 90 more and more of these sort of super schools are popping up like IMG or if like there's a really good player in Southern California there's a 90% chance he's at one of five or six schools and they all play each other and they all have all the really good players going all the really good colleges so because we get more information more context they're essentially playing at a higher level they've like created this new high level of high school Um, you can take those guys and you can feel more confident about it and so because of that these kids feel more confident in their ability because they've like seen 90 and swung a wood bat. Like going to rookie ball is like kind of like what they did last summer too. It's just like a little bit better, a little more consistent. There's not that random guy for an 84 mixed in. Um, and maybe this guy can spot three pitches, but that guy's twenty one, he's not getting out of this league. You're eighteen, if you can hit a home run, like you're getting out of this league. So I think all of that is happening. And then on top of all of that from the from the point of view of the front offices, you know, with all of the, you know, the Wharton business school, Jeff Lunau uh management consultant kind of thinking, a lot of times you're you're doing what you need to do with your young players, developing them, promoting them, having an opinion about them based on what your scouts and coaches say. And often the way that those guys will talk about how good a player is, is like very abstract. It's not very scientific. You're not getting the level of certainty you want. And like as the front office person, your specialty is not watching a guy and saying this guy can do blank. And so in a world where there's only so many Mike Rizzo, the GM of the nationals who used to be a scouting director, there's a lot of guys that are more like David Stearns, who's not currently a GM, but that kind of like went to Harvard, worked in an office is not an evaluator. And so to give that kind of guy the um, confidence they need to be able to promote a guy quickly, like what San Diego's doing with Ethan Salas, if you're that kind of GM, you need data. And now we have that data, in addition to all of these high school players playing at very high levels when they're like, like I'm seeing guys as freshmen and sophomores showing up and playing with the juniors and seniors standing out. And sometimes that guy turns into being Bobby Witt Jr., hitting a ball 105 as a 16-year-old with a wood bat facing 19-year-olds. Like that happens now, like pretty often. Um, you now have that data. And so instead of saying, well, this guy's you know, hitting 300 in you know, 20 games, it's time to promote him, like that on its own kind of means nothing at this point. But like, this guy's exit VLOs, we have his exit VLOs from when he was 15. We have his exit VLOs this week. We have his you know, blast motion, bat knob, sensor. This is what his length like, to the ball is in the batting cage. Like, you have the data now to know how good a guy is instead of trying to like, surmise it and triangulate it with imperfect info. So these kids at the same time are getting more advanced at the same age all the people making the decisions are also getting more certainty about how good they are while they're getting better. And so you can kind of more accurately, more quickly put them at the level they're supposed to be at. And I think also with, I would argue with social media, they're getting a little more mature in terms of understanding what's, you know, what they need to do with the media, like all the sort of things that in the 80s and 90s were sort of foreign for, oh, a 17-year-old in double A that doesn't speak English, which Sal is bilingual, but let's imagine he's a 17-year-old that doesn't speak English. It's like that would be just Socially, a terrible t- situation to put him in. You're like setting him up to fail. And that kid has been training for this situation for four or five years now. Like, he's not, um, he, he's, he's a catcher that wants to be in the big leagues as a teenager. He knew, like, oh, I need to be bilingual. I need to figure this stuff out. I need to get going. I need to be mature. I need to act like a professional. And he started doing that when he was like 13 or 14. So, like, he's been training for this at that level. And that is not how players, high school players in the 80s, were approaching this stuff. And they probably shouldn't have been. And, <laughs> And now that all that stuff is much more real and much easier to sort of understand.
0: And yeah, it changes so quickly that, you know, future value, the book you wrote with Eric Longenhagen, uh, it only came out three and a half years ago. I loved it. And it sounds like it's sequel time uh, sometime soon here, certainly before you get to uh, the 10 year anniversary of it in 2030. Uh, Kylie McDaniel, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Keep up all the great work. I was thinking more movie, but yeah, we Oh. See too. okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, you know, you know what? Salas is probably the right main character, right? 17-year-old yeah, in double you know, A.
4: Moneyball and Michael Lewis did it. Like, you know, what, what, why can't this be a movie?
0: Yeah, why not? Let's uh, let's see. We'll get casting right away. Uh, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, Power Alley's on Substack, uh, co-author of Future Value, which is a, a tremendous, tremendous read if you like this kind of front office thinking side of the game of baseball. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We will we'll do a little bit of that, see what Arden Zwelling thinks about potential September call-ups here. He's a guy who always has his finger on the pulse of what's going on at the high levels of the minors. We'll also continue to uh, dissect last night's seven-nothing loss and tee up tonight's rubber match between the Blue Jays and the Orioles. It is Jose Barrios against Kyle Gibson. Arden Zwelling joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360
2: smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Jays Stop Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Jays lose last night 7-0, even up this series 1-1, with the Orioles, they'll settle it tonight, seven o'clock on Sportsnet and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Jose Brios against Kyle Gibson, uh, giving the up, giving us the updates on the television side. Will be our next guest, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet. Arden, good morning, man. How
5: you doing? Hey, Blake, I'm good, man. How are you?
0: I'm good. Uh, wanted to, we'll talk about the the actual games, but you had a, a note on the broadcast last night. And wanted to talk about it in a little bit more detail because this is the kind of, you know, nerdy, granular stuff that I I love hearing you talk about and formally write about. But the stuff with Whit Merrifield and his grip on the bat, obviously, you know, two strikes, uh, 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 a bat-to-ball game situation. We're used to seeing guys choke up on the bat a little bit. But this has become pretty much a round-the-clock regular thing for Whit Merrifield where his approach... Just has quite a choke on the bat. What what's gone into that? What did you learn in talking to Whit Merrifield about you know his his approach at the plate and how the handwork goes into that?
5: I love it. That's a great question. I'm so happy you asked me about this (laughs) because there are. I think you're probably similar. Sometimes when you watch a lot of baseball, there are things you see that once you see them, you can't stop seeing them. So for me it's like last night Kevin Gosman's a great example. Watch him when he gets the ball back in between pitches. He always brings it down in his glove and then just does this cool little flip from glove to bare hand. Uh that he told me he doesn't even realize that he does, but he does it like after every single pitch and uh it's like completely unconscious. He's not even thinking about it, but he never misses this little ball flip. And so that's one of those things that I, I just, for whatever reason I focus in on, and I can't unsee it. And another one was when I realized that like Whit Merrifield chokes up on his bat. And then I just watched more and more Whit Merrifield and was like, oh, he never doesn't choke up on his bat. He's always choked up on his bat. It's not just a two-strike thing. It's not just a make-contact thing. So I asked him about it, and, like, it goes back to him transitioning from college to professional balls. You're going from metal bats to wood bats, and uh, he ran through, like, every wood bat that he could and couldn't find one that he liked. Ended up grabbing one of his dad's old bats, and his dad – Uh, is a bigger guy than him, got up to AAA, I believe, and he just kind of liked the way that it felt in his hands. But the thing is, like, Witt's dad is a big dude, and it's a big bat. and It's really too heavy and too big for a guy of Witt's stature. So he just sort of choked up on it and started swinging it that way, liked it, had success with it, and has just done it ever since. Like, he's still, to this day, using the model, the weight, the size of his dad's bat it is not a bat that you would outfit him with if you're trying to get the optimal weight dimensions of the bat for Whit Merrifield, but it's just what works for him. So he has to choke up on it. And I asked him, I was like, look, like a lot of guys choke up on their bat and they feel like, you know, they do that to kind of prioritize contact and maybe sacrifice a little bit of power when you do that. And Wit was almost offended. Like, no, <laughs> i like, I, I think that is a total misnomer. Like, I don't think that's the case at all. It's It doesn't matter where you hold the bat. It's not going to stop you from swinging it hard. He actually pointed to Dalton Varsho, who holds his bat a little bit below the knob, actually, and still, like, you know, generates pretty good exit velocities doing that. So for Witt, it's just one of those weird baseball things that has worked for him. And, you know, we've seen the power from him a bit more lately. Like, he's still able to generate that speed, and he's still able to hit the ball hard and hit over the wall. Maybe it helps him with the contact a little bit as well, but it is just one of those little baseball oddities that once I saw it I just could not unsee it every time it was at the at the plate.
0: Well, and it's it's uh, pretty extreme, right? Like like you said, there are other guys who do it a little bit or do it situationally. So of course it stands out. I've noticed the Varshow show thing too, and I'm I'm fascinated by the couple guys around baseball who have like the uh, the hockey puck knob or the axe handle knob, and uh, just what goes into trying that. Another audit, you mentioned Whit Merrifield's dad. He's actually one of the few uh, phantom ball players, which means he actually got two two days of major league service time, got called up, didn't get into a game, and then got sent. Back down, which has to be uh one of the worst uh oddities that you can be. Um, so maybe the look, I know Wit was hitless yesterday, but when you look at what he's done lately, maybe the last week aside, but but the last little while, maybe everyone should be trying to do something a little different with the bat today. Uh Jay's shut out yesterday for the eighth time since June 19th. That's not league high overall. But it's a lot, and it is a league high since June 19th. Um, It was Dean Kramer this time kind of flummoxing them, even though they've seen a lot of Dean Kramer the last two years. We saw a guy like Brett Kennedy, who maybe there's some deception to it, but it was a lot of 93 over the plate, uh, give them trouble as well. Whereas, They just teed off on Hunter Green and did all right against Grayson Rodriguez. What do you make of the fact that it's been the softer tossers, the guys maybe harder to guess correctly, but not not the guys who are just harder to catch up with that have given them the most trouble lately?
5: I wonder if sometimes it's almost easier to prepare and have an approach against a guy like Hunter Green, even though his stuff is exceptional and will blow you away and make you look foolish if you're not ready for it. You go up to the plate essentially knowing I'm getting a 98-99-mile-per-hour fastball or I'm getting a wicked slide. I just know that's what I'm going to get, and I know how Hunter Green likes to approach righties or lefties, and I know what he's going to throw, and I'm geared up for it. I'm prepared for it. I have dialed up the eye-pitch machine before this game to throw me really high velocity and wipe out sliders. I am very focused in on that. But when you go up against... A Dean Kramer who's working like four or five pitches and moving them all around the zone and using like a really effective cutter that um, I thought was a huge pitch for him against righties last night and a couple against lefties, more so like the elevated fastball against lefties and the change up down in the zone. Righties were getting that cutter a lot, sinkers, some more of those elevated fastballs, certainly, and the curveball as well. I mean, how many pitches did I just mention? <laughs> you got to be ready for all of that stuff, right? It's like the Ross Stripling kitchen sink approach. So you're not entirely sure what you're going to get when you're up there, and then you get a night like last night where Dean Kramer was just really effective at moving the, you know, his pitches around the zone and giving hitters a, a different look. First trip through, second trip through. I do wonder if sometimes that can be a bit more of a challenge, even if the stuff isn't overwhelming and metrically it's not going to blow you away and it's not going to be a bright red on, on baseball. Savant. Um, I do think that as a hitter, like sometimes that, that can be just as challenging and, you know, Cal Gibson tonight pre- presents pretty similar challenge when you think about it.
0: Yeah. Six pitches again. And that kind of long extension down the mound sinker where it just, it really feels like it's, it's tough to get, underneath it whatsoever. And yeah, to your point, you know, we've heard when Bo was on the television broadcast while he was on the IL, talked a lot about, you know, guys being more set with identifying a pitch or identifying a part of the zone. Well, like you said, if you throw six different pitches and each of those two pitches, you'll throw to three different spots. Well, that's one of 18 different things you've got to dial in on versus, you know, Hunter Green who, you know, you're probably looking fastball high or slider away and you can kind of pick between uh, between two there. The other element of this, obviously Arden is uh, they miss Paul DeYoung's bat. He homers yesterday and gets, uh, gets three hits. Do you just chuckle at that man? Like obviously we I know Paul DeYoung was not as bad as three for 44, but I haven't talked to you since they made that decision to DFA DeYoung rather than option someone else down. Uh, this just a case of a, a guy who didn't click and they were like, hey, it's not going to click here. Fresh start somewhere else. What, what did you make of the DeYoung DFA versus, you know, Schneider option for a couple days uh, approach to that on the weekend?
5: Yeah, we were in the Blue Jays clubhouse actually when uh, DeYoung went deep. It was his second uh, AD of the day for the Giants. It was on the screen in the clubhouse, and uh, somebody from the Blue Jays cat kind of turned to me and said, "Well, he was due." Uh, <laughs> I thought, "Yeah, <laughs> he, he certainly was." Uh, you know, I think that when the Blue Jays looked at Bo Bichette's readiness to play shortstop on a regular basis, first and foremost, and then looked at paul de young's performance of late and the necessity of putting out your best lineup and having some urgency and being a bit more of a meritocracy right now going forward I think the Blue Jays just came to the conclusion that we're covered at shortstop. We feel good. We feel like both can play enough, so we don't need like the Young's perfectly capable, you know, shortstop defense there. Uh, we, we can get by with the Santiago Espinal defense uh, day every now and then if we have to. And then we're going to go with our best hitters right now, and we're going to go with like a, a, an Espinal and, and a Biggio and a David Schneider who have been more impactful and have done more at the plate and who we are more invested in uh beyond this season than we are in paul DeYoung, just to be candid so uh you know it, it worked out very well immediately and that david snyder hit them a home run that won them a game on saturday right after paul de young was dfa drawn into the lineup um so I, I think that for all those reasons that's kind of why they made that decision uh and i you know Like, Paul DeYoung is a big leaguer, and I think he's going to show you that with the Giants the rest of the way. And it's just going to be one of those weird, like, Brad Hand examples (laughs) where a guy comes to the Blue Jays, has, like, the, the worst three weeks of his career. And then goes somewhere else and, and just continues playing to the standard that he's set for himself over uh, you know, many seasons at this level.
0: And I wonder too, Arden, if that decision and the Jays leaning for offense in that roster spot versus defense and protection against injury tells us something. We're we're still a week away from September call-ups. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk to you again before then. But when you look at that decision, when you look at who is available, at AAA and could maybe help this team down the stretch. Uh, you know, I think the easy answer is Nathan Lucas. He, he's he been in that spot before. He offers you some pinch running and defensive value there. But there are a couple other names at, at AAA that could maybe help. There are obviously um, the the more prospect-oriented names like Addison Barger, someone who doesn't have a path to a position but has hit like crazy in Spencer Horwitz. Even a guy like Cam Eden, who's not on the 40-man but is 45 for 48 stealing bases down there this year. Do you have... A lean on what you think the Blue Jays may value with that 28th man roster spot when uh, when things open up next week?
5: I think, you know, you, you mentioned some really good names there. And one more that I would add to that list is Ernie Clement, who mm-hmm. has uh, been tearing it up offensively. Friend of and the show. Chivalry. How could I forget? <laughs> Recently, yeah. Noted guest on uh, mm-hmm. Jays Talk Plus and uh, a guy who can play some shortstop as well, to your point uh so if you really needed to get both some d h stays down the stretch and maybe you don't have a good matchup for uh Santiago Espinal for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, Clement and Espinal both hit righty, but maybe there's something with the swing planes or with the velo, the style of pitching that you're going to see where you think Clement's a better matchup. Put a Clement in there; he could play shortstop for you. So, that, I would think you know the the Lucas Clement tier is going to be sort of the the first option because you'd rather keep like uh, a Barger, uh, you know, a Horowitz, um, a Martinez, a Camp Eden who you mentioned playing right. Right now, we'd rather they're having regular reps at AAA as Buffalo finishes out their season. You know, if you're constructing a playoff roster, um, it might be a different conversation with uh, like Cam Eden bringing a very real speed element that you might want to bring in off of uh, off of your bench. Or you know, obviously Nathan Lucas like a very sound defender and he brings a contact element at the plate and a discipline element at the plate that you may want there or if you're even like just down the stretch in September and you're like, man, we keep getting shut out. We are not getting anything offensively. We are like a little bit desperate right now for some sort of a spark in our lineup. Let's bring up Addison Barger and see if he can run into one. So, uh, you know, those would be sort of the, the considerations, I think, for that final roster spot.
0: And Cam Eden, uh, certainly not a guy you're, you're going to ask to hit much. But if you are looking at that, he'd need a 40-man spot by August 31st to be playoff eligible. So, um, you know, maybe some some juggling there to come. There's also the Chad Green element on the pitching side. Um, I know you guys got a minor update on him yesterday, Arden, and, and they're not going to say as much. But do you get the sense they'll probably just wait for September 1st now at this this point with, with Chad Green unless they really need an arm at, at the major league level?
5: It felt like, like, even before the concussion, the Blue Jays had just been waiting for this decision to take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the shulmanism of it, of just somebody gets hurt, a roster spot opens, you have a need, and so you just pull the the Chad Green trigger. And, the, and it just hasn't happened to that point. And obviously really unfortunate that uh, Tyler Heinemann domed him and he had a, you know to go into the concussion protocol there. But the you know one side sort of benefit for the Blue Jays that came from that She started a new 30 days on on rehab Uh, and it's kind of like rehabs for Tommy Johns are actually kind of interesting. You can do your 30 days and then if player and club both agree, you can actually extend a Tommy John rehab assignment by 10 days. Uh, just because of the nature of the injury. And sometimes it takes longer than a month for a guy to get back to where he needs to be. Uh, and you can do that three times. So it's actually possible you could spend 60 days on a rehab assignment with Tommy John. Of course, the players got to be on board and the club has to think it's necessary. So that option was always there for the Blue Jays. But it does feel like, to your point, um, just to get back to your usual question, like the Blue Jays just waiting for the opening and the ideal time to make this move. And if it doesn't happen between now and September, they gain an extra roster spot, and, and then that makes it easy.
0: So the other kind of difficult roster management thing right now, and this is kind of a, an unknown, I know you you and Ben Nicholson-Smith spoke about it on Blue Jay Central before the game yesterday. You guys were zipping it around. It was a great segment. But uh, we don't really know... What to make of this Alec Manoa situation? It's now been almost two weeks since he was optioned, and the Blue Jays said, you know, over a week ago, hey, he's going down to AAA. He's going to start there. He is at last update still in Toronto, not down in the complex, anything like that. What do you? What is your read on this situation, and, and what the what the plan might be this next little bit? Or, or are you guys as uh, as much less to guess a, as we are right now?
5: Information has been hard to come by on that one, Uh, and it's really just status quo as far as what I have to report. He's in Toronto, and we're not entirely certain what the plan is for him going forward. Uh, it's my understanding that the Blue Jays have been having discussions uh, you know, over the last sort of, 24, 36 hours just about what's going to happen with Alec Manoa going forward and what's best for him, what's best for the club. And I expect we're going to learn some more about that, if not today, then on the weekend. Um, my biggest question personally is what kind of throwing has Alec mm-hmm. Manoa done over the last two weeks? Has he been off a mound? Is he playing long toss, flat ground? Has he thrown pitches? Like, just where is he at? In terms of being able to absorb some workload if needed uh, on a short-term basis, because like that's just the biggest consideration for the Blue Jays right now. Because if you couldn't, you know, call him up to fill uh, an injury or to you know pitch as uh, the 27th guy of a header or whatever within the you know next several days, then like that's all of a sudden you're, you're looking at alternatives and all of a sudden you're looking at Bowden Francis. And so I like, as far as I know right now, like I would say Bowden Francis is the de facto number six in this rotation um, because he's on the roster and because we know that he is pitching regularly. And frankly, uh, if you want to talk about a guy who has like limited runs uh, has been really consistent in the strike zone, hasn't had many walks, uh is throwing with a lot of velocity and maintaining his mechanics and is very composed on the mound and is really locating his breaking ball and using that effectively well down francis checks all those boxes uh and as a guy who can offer you some length i mean that sounds like a pretty good option as a number six starter somebody who if you had that double header situation or that injury situation could give you three, four innings, and then you're asking Trevor Richards for two or three, and then you're turning things over to your bullpen from there. So, I mean, that, that's what I'm going to go forward with until we hear or learn some more about Alec Manoa and where he's at and what the next steps look like for him, but certainly just a lot of uncertainty there right now uh, we, we really we know as much as as we've told you
0: yeah and and that's a it's well said because you know the the thought with him being optioned to triple a rather than back to the complex league because the complex league solves all of the we're asking questions about it you just do the like he's in the pitching lab for the rest of the year thing but when they said triple a not only not only does the change in plan raise a flag, but also the presumption was, yeah, he's SP6. And now I'm with you. You, you know how I feel about Bowden Francis. I, I like watching him pitch a lot. And only five walks over 27 innings uh, is, is pretty good stuff, in addition to three-inning saves, which are always fun. Uh, Arden Swelling, thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. I hope that Camden has a place for you to shelter if the weather turns the way the forecast suggests it may.
5: Oh, geez. I haven't even looked at it, uh, and I'm just not even going to look at it until I have to. It's sunny there right (laughs) now.
0: Chris Black corrected me and said it's sunny there right now. He sent me a picture, but uh, it is supposed to rain a little later, so hope you guys get this one in and stay dry.
3: Yeah,
5: me too, man. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Arden'swelling of Sportsnet, he will be on the television broadcast with Dan Schulman and Joe Siddle uh, a little later today. Jays then return home and you're going to see hear a lot of Dan Schulman because Dan Schulman is going to be the voice of Canada basketball as the FIBA World Cup starts tomorrow morning on Sportsnet as well. Canada gets underway 9:30 a.m. against France. Good luck to me in doing this show in this time slot tomorrow while watching the Canada France game. Uh, I've got a preview up on Sportsnet See as well. We can see everything about uh, set you up for Canada in this tournament. Who's on the roster? Their strengths, their weaknesses. What's at stake here? Uh, what the Olympic qualification is like. But of course, we'll be talking Jays here tomorrow morning as well, uh, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. It's Jose Brios against Kyle Gibson tonight in the rubber match it's jesse rubinoff and matt marchese for you next it's jeff blair solo five to seven to continue teeing you up for this series and it's jeff blair solo for jay's talk post game uh, thanks to jay jackson kylie mcdaniel arden's welling and ben Schulman. thanks to nick andrew jennifer behind the glass talk to you tomorrow